Bible, turn with me, Romans chapter 6. And let me say this by way of introduction. Now, it has been six weeks since we studied in the book of Romans. We are, we are in an expository study through the book of Romans. We took the month of August, and we canceled everything in our schedule. And we, we had 2 o'clock services on Sunday, brought in guest ministers, and we had a tremendous time of refreshing and renewing in the Holy Ghost. Amen? And so it has, there were five Sundays in August, and last Sunday was Grandparents Day, and so we have not had this, we've not been in this study for six weeks. However, we previously were in this study for the first five chapters of the book of Romans, took us 28 weeks. So we're going to be here for a while, amen? Romans chapter 6 is where we start, and I'm going I'm to spend a lot of time this morning in introduction because we, we said when we ended Romans chapter 5 back at the end of July that uh, it was the end of a section in the book and that when we picked it back up we'd be stepping into another portion of the book that, that deals with a, a further, it, it, it grows upon what was already said but it's a different section with a different point. So I'm going to spend some time this morning introducing this and then we'll We'll cover the first two verses of Romans chapter 6 today. I'll read that text in just a little while. Up to this point, and if you've been with us through the study, then, then you're, you're, you're probably aware of where we are. If you're not, or if you want to refresh yourself, every single session has been audio taped. And audio taped, there goes my 90s language coming out on me. We've got MP3s. I didn't even know what MP3 was when I was using the audio tape, but we've got them. Amen. We deliver them on our Facebook media page for the church. Uh, it's, it's PLC Media Ministries on Facebook. We deliver every week our Sunday morning lesson from the book of Romans. That means that all 28 previous lessons are there. You can go there and listen to them. If you miss one, you can, you can listen to it. If you want to catch up and find out where we are, all 28 lessons are available online. Actually, there are 27. We missed the very first one, which was an introduction, didn't cover any scripture. So there are 27 lessons there online. Amen? Amen. So up to this point, Paul has been focused on explaining the inner workings of our salvation. We've talked a lot about justification by faith. He's made it abundantly clear that we are justified by faith. And he has explained to us that the works of the law cannot save us, but that our faith, as evidenced by our obedience to the word of God, is what saves us. Amen? So having addressed salvation, having addressed and, and very technically the inner workings of how salvation works in the first Five chapters of the book of Romans, Paul now turns to the next logical step in this discussion. How then should a believer live? After you've experienced such an incredible salvation, how should you live your life? Even more pointedly, the question is, if you're saved by grace and not by works, then does it matter what you do? Does it matter how you live? If your works can't save you, then do your works matter at all? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Your works do matter. Your life does matter. It does matter how you live your life. The believer 
even after the initial salvation experience, must contend with sin, must contend with the carnal flesh, must contend with this ungodly world in which we live. And justification, though it is the means by which we are saved, is not the final step of salvation. It is a beginning, not an ending. Amen? So after you're justified... You've got to continue living for God. That process of continuing, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago in service, and the terminology is something that should be familiar to us, but sometimes isn't so familiar to us. The, the, the process of continuing beyond justification is called sanctification. Sanctification means separation. God's people have always been a separated People. And after you're justified you by faith, then you continue in sanctification by faith. Amen? When God called Abraham, he called him to come out of her. He called him to leave behind, to separate himself from the world in which he lived. Leave your kindred, leave your kin, leave, leave everything you know, leave everybody that's around you. Get out of that place, come out from there, and go to a land that I'm going to give to you. Come out from them. When he visited the children of Abraham in Egyptian bondage and Egyptian slavery, that slavery was a type of the bondage of sin. And when God came to them, he didn't leave them there, but he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of that bondage. He brought them out of that place where they had lived. Likewise, when Paul addressed the church at Corinth, he told them that the Lord required of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 to come out from among them and be ye separate. He said, don't touch the unclean thing and then you'll be received by God. Separation matters. Sanctification is an important part of the life of a believer, and that's where Paul now turns. Having explained justification, having explained salvation, having gotten into the inner workings of how we're saved, now we move to the next logical step, and it's what happens in our life after that initial salvation experience. Theologically speaking, sanctification refers to the state of separation from sin and dedication to God. It is the process of becoming progressively more holy. It's the process of becoming progressively more righteous, more godly, becoming more like him and less like me. When we're justified, we're declared to be righteous. God declares us to be righteous even though we're not. You came to this altar as a sinner. You knelt and you repented of your sins. And when you repented of your sins, God began a work in your life that leads you from repentance to water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And the Spirit of God speaks better things over your life. He speaks better things over you than what is actually exhibited in your life at that moment that you come as a sinner seeking salvation. We're sinners. Saved by the grace of God. God forgave us and he declared us to be righteous when we were not righteous. By the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness. Amen. That's justification. 
It's just as if I'd never sinned. I've been justified. It's just as if I'd never done any wrong. But in reality, I had been living in sin up to that moment. In reality, up to that place where I came and I repented of my sins and God began that work in my life of faith that brings me to the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Up to that point in my life, I've been living in sin. Here's the key. God will save you just like you are. But He's not going to leave you that way. God will save you in the condition that you're in. But He's not going to leave you in that condition. God doesn't intend for you to remain in that place. Salvation leads to sanctification. Sanctification is a process by which we actually become more righteous in our day-to-day living. I know this is going to be hard for most of you to believe, except for my wife. But when God saved me, He didn't make me perfect. I know that's a bitter pill to swallow, but I'm a little less than perfect. Amen? But what He did do is He set me on a journey towards perfection. He set me on a journey towards the ultimate righteousness and holiness and godliness that I live towards. I I won't ever reach that destination on this side of glory. I'm never going to be perfect over here. But with each passing day, I'm supposed to grow a little more like Him. With each passing day, I'm supposed to get to be a little closer to what He's called me to be. With every passing moment, I'm supposed to become a little more righteous, a little more godly, a little more holy, a little bit more of Him and a whole lot less of me. I got to decrease and He has to increase in my life. That process, that growth that happens is called sanctification. It begins at justification and it continues as a progressive work of the Holy Ghost in my life, throughout the rest of my life. It never stops. I'm always growing in grace. I'm always growing in righteousness and godliness. I I never get to the place where I have arrived. I'm always, there's always room for me to get closer to God. There's always room for me to grow in my walk with God. There's always room for me to become more like Him and less like me. Paul said in the 6th chapter of Corinthians that some of those in the church at Corinth had once been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, verbally abusive, antagonists, and extortioners, but they weren't those things anymore. That's what the scripture says. Go read it for yourself. Their lives had been changed when they were justified. They were washed and they were sanctified. Read the scripture. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. They didn't remain what they had been. They didn't remain those things that they were before. Those things changed in their life. 
day by day, moment by moment, they grew in righteousness and godliness. They separated themselves from the old life. They, they separated themselves from what they had been. They once were thieves, but they're not thieves anymore. Amen. They had once walked in ungodliness and lascivious lifestyles and all kinds of debauchery. They don't do that anymore. Amen. Because they've been saved. Because the grace of God has moved in their life and it has changed them. Sanctification means that we should live a life of victory over sin. The same grace that removes the guilt of sin and justification also empowers us to overcome sin in sanctification. God's not just interested in dealing with your past. He isn't just interested in washing away the guilt of your past sins. He also has a plan for your future. He saved you so that you could show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Your life is going to be a reflection of the glory and the majesty of God. He saved you so that he could put himself on display in your life. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13 that the end goal is that God may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. Justification, according to the Welsh theologian Griffith Thomas, is the straight gate through which we enter the narrow way of holiness. And from that point that we pass through the gate of justification, We are to focus on the way, not the gate. He says that in this way, the contrast between the judgment of God and justification in the life of the unbeliever gives way to the contrast between sin and holiness in the life of the believer. After initially experiencing justification, according to Thomas, the focus shifts to sanctification and the call to be separated. To live a life that is different from your former life. To live a life that is different from your former ways. You see, for too many folks, the focus is on salvation alone. The primary question is, preacher, what do I got to do to be saved? How can I be saved? But they never give any thought to a much more important question. How can I stay saved? saved what happens after that conversion sanctification is about staying saved it's about living the life of an overcomer it is incredibly important that after you're saved by grace that you continue to grow in grace you don't get saved and then just stop growing in the lord you, you don't get saved and then just stop and all forward progress towards godliness and righteousness and holiness and camp out right there. One would have to question their salvation if they did not continue to grow in sanctification. That's what the scripture teaches. Now one issue with the way that justification by faith is perceived by many people stems from a flawed understanding of what faith is and what is meant by faith. When Paul talks about it. Faith is more. 
than just mere mental assent. It means more than just repeating a creed or affirming your belief that Jesus is your Savior without any real change in your life. Faith means to believe in Jesus Christ, to love him with your whole heart, and to obey him with your whole person. Ultimately, it means that you surrender your whole being to him in a life of unselfish service to God. Ultimately, faith leads you to the, the saving event that took place at Calvary, to the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you die in repentance you're buried in water baptism with him and that same spirit that caused him to rise from the dead comes and lives inside of you when you're filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost justification is not an excuse to stay the same as you've always been it is not an excuse to continue in sin rather it results in righteousness and true obedience to God. Justification and sanctification. We talked about justification for 28 weeks. We're going to talk about sanctification probably for another. Lord have mercy. We may be the rest of this book. We may be here for a year or more. We dealt with them as separate concepts. But it is important that I tell you that they are united together in experience. You can't have justification without sanctification. You cannot have justification that doesn't yield sanctification. There is no such thing as salvation that doesn't change you. Can I get an amen? And also, sanctification that isn't based in justification is nothing more than a flawed effort to try to make yourself acceptable to God. You've got to be justified. You've got to have that salvation experience, and you must continue to grow in that experience. Real, genuine justification and sanctification are inseparable. They are inextricably linked together. Just as we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, so then we must continue to walk in Him to walk by faith in His Spirit, to allow the presence of God that abides within us to empower us every day that we live to live right before God. Amen? Holiness is born in sanctification. It is the work of the Spirit of God in us. It is not the work of our flesh. And that's the process now that Paul embraces in the next chapter, these next three chapters, we're going to deal with sanctification in general. And then we'll move on into some more specific things as we go through the book. So the next three chapters, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, focus on the life of the believer. And Paul jumps right into that discussion by asking, should Christians sin? And we're just going to cover the first two verses because I, I felt necessary to kind of give a lengthy introduction. I wanted to bring everybody up to speed on what we mean when we say justification and what we mean when we say sanctification. Some of you have heard this previously, but I wanted to get everybody on the same page. So we're going to pick up verses 1 and 2, and we're going to look at them today. Amen? Our text, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I'd love to have added verses 3 and 4 this morning, but I'm afraid if I did, your roast would burn. Amen. I can get kind of passionate and carried away. And verses 3 and 4 have quite a bit of depth that is built on this discussion. So this morning we'll kind of give the, the first step, and next Sunday we'll kind of tie it all back together. Amen. So what shall we say? That's the opening phrase. What shall we say then? That what shall we say then? That word then ties us back to everything else that we've talked about. It takes us all the way back to the first five chapters of Romans. This, this question that Paul is asking here is built on everything else that we've already talked about up to this point. Paul is about to explain the logical consequences of the doctrine of justification by faith. He perceives the fact that some folks may arrive at the wrong conclusion. After having read Romans chapter 5 and some of the stuff that went previously, some might suppose that justification that is based on faith instead of works actually encourages people to continue to live in sin. Believe it or not, there are some Bible teachers in history that have proposed that very idea. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 that the more sin there is, the more grace God bestows on us to save us from our sins. And some have established a flawed premise based on that scripture and those words and have taught that the way to have more grace of God working in your life is to sin more. As if the grace of God was some kind of reward that is bestowed upon you for sinning. I'm going to use an extreme example, and it is extreme, and there are others throughout history I could name. But there was a Russian monk by the name of Gregory Rasputin who taught a doctrine that said that those who sin the most require the most forgiveness. So a sinner who continues to sin with abandon after they've been saved receives every time that he repents more of God's forgiving grace in his life than an ordinary sinner has. So he gets closer to God by continuing in sin. Under his logic and under the logic of others who err in this point, if you want more grace, then you ought to sin more. I'm going to tell you absolutely, no interpretation of Paul's writing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from what Paul intended to say. Paul launches into this discussion with this question, shall we continue in sin? Dealing with that exact question, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? The exact question that I just dealt with, the exact question which gives rise to a lot of confusion even in our world today. In the phrase, shall we continue in sin? That phrase, continue in sin, the word sin there is a noun. What that phrase means, it literally means should we remain in sin or should we remain in the domain of sin, sin being a noun, being a, a place or a, a domain. 
that expression is stronger than the way that many people read it. With many people read it as an admonishment not to continue to commit sins. But what Paul is saying is more than just should we continue to commit sins. What he's saying is should we continue to live in the state of sin? Should we continue to be under the control of sin? Should we continue in the dominion of sin? Paul is asking when we come to God, in the salvation experience, should we then remain where we are? Should we then stay the same as we are without making any changes in, in our sinful lifestyles, in our, our sinful habits? Should we continue to live in sin? The answer is, in verse 2, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein that answer is emphatic god forbid or absolutely not the language here according to john john macarthur is the strongest idiom of repudiation in new testament greek it is the strongest denial in all of scripture this isn't just a it ought to be followed with an exclamation point maybe three or four exclamation points you know I like when I get excited, I, I, one exclamation point just don't seem to do it for me. I want to put three or four of them on there. That's kind of what Paul has done here. It's the strongest repudiation. It's the strongest denial that he could, he could come up with in the Greek. It's the strongest denial in New Testament Greek in all of the Scripture. Paul follows that denial with an answer to the question that this single phrase, this single answer sums up the next 12 verses that we're going to study. Essentially, he says, we died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? John MacArthur called this statement the fundamental premise of the entire chapter. This is the base. This little phrase really is the content that is going to be expounded upon for the next 12 chapters, next 12 verses, and then further into the chapters, he answers the second question. And I want to take a moment this morning and break it down. I know, you, as I said, I'm only going to cover two verses, and I'm already in the second verse, and you may be looking, thinking, man, we're going to get out early. I'm nowhere near done yet. Amen. I want to take a minute, and I want to, I want to break down what Paul's talking about here. The subject here is we, and it is emphatic. We are those who have died. And it conveys a forceful rejection of the premise. It's as if Paul is saying, we of all people, we who have died to sin, we, we, the ones that have been experienced such a wonderful salvation, we who, when we came to the cross, we were crucified with Christ, us who are dead. How could we choose to live any longer in sin. Anyone who thinks that a believer can continue in an unchanged life of sin after their conversion has a basic misunderstanding of what happens in salvation. Salvation is about more than just muttering a few tentative words of faith or repeating some creed that somebody tells you to say. Jesus Christ calls men to come to the cross of Calvary and die with him. Jesus Christ calls men to come and die. The conversion of Christianity starts at the cross and it begins with 
death. To believe that you can continue in the life of sin is to show that you don't understand the basic premise upon which your salvation is based. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And when we come to Him at the cross, we die with Him to be set free from the bondage of sin. The phrase, dead to sin, would probably have been better translated as we who died to sin. The verb is a simple aorist past tense in the Greek, and it indicates a specific past event in our personal history. I talk a lot about verb tenses when we're working through these New Testament scriptures because some verb tenses indicate an ongoing event. This isn't an ongoing event. This is something that happened. It happened in the past. It was something that happened when you came to the altar and you repented of your sins and you went to the water and baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He filled you with His Spirit. At some point, you died to sin. He's saying that there's a moment in your life when you died. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that when we walked according to the ways of the world, we were dead in our sins. But here he's saying that when we came to the cross, when we came to Jesus at Calvary, we died to our sins. That's different. I was dead in my sins. I didn't have any spiritual life. That which died in Adam had died in me. I was born with that curse. I was dead in my sins. But when I came to the cross, I died to my sins. Amen. This fleshly man was mortified. This fleshly man was crucified with Jesus Christ. I died at the cross with him. Amen. Before I was a slave to sin. Before sin was the controlling tyrant in my life. Sin enslaved me. It had power over me. When you're a slave, you do what the slave master tells you to do. You don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. But at the cross, when I came to Jesus Christ in obedience to the gospel and I died with him at the cross and I was buried with him in baptism and I received that same resurrecting spirit of God into my life, that controlling influence of sin was broken. I died to sin. The slave master can beat me until I'm dead, but once I'm dead, he doesn't have any more control over me. He can influence me to a point, but once I'm dead, he doesn't have any authority over me anymore. That's the kind of language that Paul uses to describe conversion. Moving to Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 20, he said that we are dead with Christ from the rudiments of this world. We, we died out to the things of this world. We're, we're not the same as we used to be. When we came to the cross, we died to that stuff. In, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, he said, Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Amen. You died to that stuff and now you've got a new life. You've been hidden in Jesus Christ. Amen. The idea that we're dead to sin is the centerpiece of Paul's argument that we should not continue to live in sin. Paul does not mean that something within us died. He's not saying that sin was like a disease. It was like a cancer in your life. And whenever you came to Jesus Christ, that that sin disease died within you. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that we ourselves died. The person that we used to be, 
the man or woman that was dominated by sin, that person died. The scripture uses the phrase the old man. The old man died at the cross. The old man was crucified with Christ. It's important that you get this because what happens in salvation is so radical that the only way that you can explain it, the only way that the effects of salvation can be captured is in the language of life and death. What happens at the altar of repentance is death. And there's no other way to explain it. When you die, everything changes. When you die, amen, what was before is no more, amen. When you come to that place of dying, it is an absolute disruption to everything. When the old man was alive, he controlled us. When the old man was alive, he had dominion over us. The only way that the power that our flesh and sin had over us could be broken was for that old man to die. When you come to the altar in repentance, it isn't just a momentary sorrow where you feel bad that you got caught in the cookie jar. Amen? It is a life-changing event. When you get really serious about repenting for your sins, the old man dies. A little later on in chapter 8, Paul is going to say that if you want to live in the newness of life that comes from the Spirit of God, then you have to mortify the deeds of the body. That word mortify has to do with putting to death. When you come to an altar of repentance, you've got to put the old man to death. You understand altars are about sacrifice. And sacrifice is about death. It's about the shedding of blood. Ask Cain and Abel. Amen. A sacrifice that doesn't shed blood isn't a sacrifice. It's about death. Something has to die at an altar. Amen. When you come to an altar of repentance, something's got to die there. It's not enough just to feel a little sorrow and, and do a little weeping and, and leave and try to keep your life intact. When you come to an altar of repentance, something's got to die in your life. Because until the old man is dead, he's still in control of your life. Until the old man is dead, he's still the tyrant. He's still the slave master. But when the old man dies... You pass from the control of sin to the control of righteousness. Sin no longer has a hold on you. Sin no longer has the authority and dominion in your life. Before you were captive to the whims of your flesh, but now the influence of the flesh has been broken by the Spirit of God. And when you bury that dead man in baptism, you're filled with, you come out of that water, you walk in the newness of life, you're filled with the Spirit of God. You receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, that Spirit of resurrection and life. You're made an overcomer. You're made, Paul said, more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. Then you have power through the Spirit, to continually mortify the deeds of the flesh. You don't live in sin any longer. You don't live under the control. You don't live in the dominion of sin any longer. As a matter of fact, since you've died to sin, this is Paul's point. Since you've died to sin, it would be a contradiction 
for you to continue to live in sin. Our death to sin is a fact. That's what happens when we come to God, when we come to Jesus Christ in salvation. And Paul uses that fact to establish his rejection of the question that starts the chapter, shall we continue to live in sin? Paul says, how can we? We have died to sin. Remember a few minutes ago I said that verse 1 referenced the domain of sin, sin as a noun. When we died to sin, we were removed from its domain. We no longer live in its sphere of influence. We're no longer subject to its rules. We have left its dominion. What Paul is saying is that if you think that as a believer you can go on living just like you've always lived, that you can continue to remain in sin's domain, under sin's dominion, then you don't understand what salvation really is and you don't understand what grace is really all about. Grace isn't about making a way for you to stay under sin's dominion. Grace isn't about making a way for you to continue to live in sin's domain. Grace is about, yes, it's about unmerited forgiveness for sin. Yes, God forgives you when you don't deserve it. But that's not all that grace is. Grace is also about deliverance from the bondage of sin. It's about coming out of that domain. It's about coming out of that dominion. It's about being separated from that old life. It's a contradiction to think that you have received grace, but you're still bound to sin. Nothing can be further from the biblical truth. Grace doesn't just wash away the guilt of your sin. Grace sets you free from the dominion of sin. It brings you out. So let me be very clear here. It is still possible for a believer to yield himself again to sin's power. If it wasn't possible for a believer to become a sinner again, then the many passages of Scripture, including this chapter of Romans, that exhort us not to return to sin's dominion would be absolutely unnecessary. It is possible, after having died to sin, to go back and live after the flesh. Now, Paul's emphatic rejection of the question given in verse 1 is not to say that it is impossible for a believer to ever be guilty of sin again. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is he, he's stating emphatically how ludicrous it would be for a believer that has been set free from sin's dominion to go back and choose to live in it again. It's the same kind of incredulous attitude that Peter had in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 when he referenced an old proverb about a pig that had been washed clean but went back to wallowing in the muck and the mire. God didn't die for your sins so you could continue to live in them. Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross so that you could stay the way that you were. He didn't go to the cross so that you could continue to live in bondage to sin. He didn't wash you in his blood so that you could go back to the filth that he washed off of you when he saved you. 
Salvation is about a change. Amen. It starts with faith. And faith in the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins demands that we repent of our sins. And repentance is an act of faith. In repentance, some people won't say, well, that's, you know, there's the, all you got to do is believe. There's the, the rest of it's works of the flesh. I'm going to tell you something. Repentance is not a work of the flesh. My flesh don't like to repent. Repentance is an act of faith that says, I believe that God loves me enough to forgive me, so I'm going to repent. It's faith that makes repentance work. They say, well, baptism, that's another act of the flesh. Baptism isn't an act of the flesh. That nothing that I do washes away my sin, but in faith calling on the name of Jesus Christ. I am buried with him. That's an act of faith. Amen. Receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is another it's the working of faith in my life. I can't, I can't make myself receive that. I can't do that. God does that. It begins in faith. It is an act of faith when I come to an altar and I begin to repent of my sins. In, in repentance, I, I go to the cross. I, I go to Calvary. And there where he died for my sins, I die with him at the cross. I repent. I have to mortify the deeds of this flesh. I've got to take this old man and I've got to put him on an altar. And he's got to die. Repentance, the phrase, the word, means a change of direction. It literally means to do an about face. To change the direction that you're going. It means that the very direction that your life was headed in before you repented changes 180 degrees. And you leave repentance going the opposite direction. Listen to me. You cannot, by definition, you cannot repent of your sins and continue to live in them. By definition, you cannot repent of your sins and continue to walk in the same direction that you were walking. Repentance means to change your direction. To go the opposite way. Repentance, genuine biblical repentance, is as radical as death. It is as radical as the cross. It is as radical as coming to that place, as saying, this man of the flesh isn't leaving here alive. I'm going to die to the desire and the whim and the control of my flesh. When you come to an altar of repentance, mark my words, you come to a place of death. And until it's as serious as death, it's not genuine. Repentance. Oh, Brother McCall, how can it be? I can tell you how. I've been sorry before that I got caught, but not really sorry that I did what I was doing. Can I get an amen? I have been star stirred to sorrow, but not stirred to godly sorrow. I have been stirred to repentance, but not stirred to, gen stirred to genuine death. 
That's why repentance demands baptism. That's where we're going to go next week. You repent, you die. When you die, what do you do with a dead man? You've got to bury a dead man. That's why repentance demands baptism. If you repent, you've got to be baptized. Baptism is that another act of faith. Once you die with him on the cross, you've got you to be buried with him in baptism. You bury the dead man. You bury the old man in the chilly waters of baptism. You rise from that watery grave to live in the newness of life. It's necessary. Baptism is based on the fact that repentance is death. You die there. And then if that dead man is buried with Christ, we have that promise that he will rise. He's going to be filled with the same spirit that caused Jesus Christ to be risen from the grave. That same resurrection in life. The Holy Ghost is going to come to live inside of you. That's the promise of the Word of God. Once again, that's an act of faith. You yield yourself to God in faith, believing that He will fill you with His Spirit. And the Spirit is what enables you to continue in that new life that you're born in. It is the Spirit that enables you to continue to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It's the Spirit that enables you to live in sanctification. I'm coming to a close, I promise. So many people repent of their sins, but never press any further. Then they wonder why they constantly struggle with sin. It's because they may have come to an altar of repentance, but they never really understood. I've got to die there, and I've got to be buried with Him. And I need that Spirit of God living inside of me. That's what empowers me. To continue. We'll get there in verse 8. I know I'm, I'm ahead. I have to be ahead because verse eight, uh, chapter 8 influences chapter 6. We're, we're going to get there in a little bit. But we're going to discover in chapter 8, it's the Spirit of God living in me that lets me, can, enables me, empowers me to continue to mortify the deeds of the flesh. I died at repentance. And then I continue to live that life by the Spirit of God that lives inside of me. Would you stand with me this morning? I know it's, it's been Pentecostal Doctrine 101. Basics. Basics are good, amen? What I want to do this morning is remind you, just as Paul reminded the Romans, what your salvation really means. You have been set free from sin. You have been delivered from the dominion of sin. And it would be a terrible tragedy if you went back to living under sin's dominion. Instead, you need to press on. Instead, you've got to pursue a life of righteousness. You've got to, you, you're not always going to be perfect. You're not always going to get it right. You're going to stumble and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to mess up from time to time. The Bible didn't say you've got to be perfect. It said you've got to take one step after another and grow in grace. That's what you're called to do. You're called to come to Him in that salvation experience, and then you're called to live a life that reflects what God has done for you. He didn't make you perfect, but He empowered you to grow towards perfection. And one of these days, one of these days, He's coming back for a bride that the Scripture said hath made herself ready. 
hath made herself ready. That's what it means to be a part of the church. It means you're making yourself ready. Somebody said, well, I don't have to do anything. God does it all for me. You need to read the scripture. You play a role in being ready for the rapture. You make yourself ready. You've got to live like you've been saved. You've got to reflect the grace of God that is very real in your life. When God saved you, he empowered you. That you could grow every day to be more like him. And I'm here to tell you on a Sunday morning, your salvation's in your hands. It's up to you. Peter preached to them on the day of Pentecost. He told them to repent of their sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But then the Bible says he exhorted them with many other words, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. It's in your hands. You've got to save yourself. You've got to make up your mind. I'm going to grow. I'm going to live for him. I wonder if on a Sunday morning, if we could take a few moments in this place and every person that's under the sound of my voice, if you just find a place of prayer and if you tell him, Lord, I, I don't want to get stuck somewhere. I don't want to stop in this growth process. But Lord, I want to keep growing to be more like you. I want it to be as emphatic in my life as it was in the scripture that, that it is absolutely ludicrous that I would go back to the life that you saved me from. Lord, I want to continue to grow in your grace. Would you find a place this morning and would you take just a moment, would you lift your heart before the throne of God? Would you tell him, Lord, wash me. If there's anything in me that's not like you, Lord, would you cleanse it from me? Lord, if, I have, if I've started to divert somewhere, somehow I've made a wrong turn, or I've taken a wrong step, or somehow I've started beginning to play again with, or beginning to, to handle again those things that I thought I had let go of, Lord, would you let conviction move in my heart? Would you let the Spirit of God stir me to remembrance of, of what happened at an altar of repentance? I can't stay that way.